Well, our scripture reading this morning is Jonah chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Jonah chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. It is on the front page of your bulletin. Um, And again, the passage is Jonah chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. I'll read that now. This is the inspired and inerrant word of God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Please join with me once more as we entreat the Lord's blessing on our service this morning. Father, our heart's desire is to to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Father, we know that there is no authority except from you and that you rule over all the earth. Lord, we pray for those whom you've given responsibility over us. We pray for President Biden, for Congress, for Governor Newsom, for our California legislature, for our Roseville mayor, as well as other local elected leaders. We pray first that all those in authority over us who do not know you may come to a knowledge of the truth. We also pray that they may love mercy, do justice, hate dishonest gain, exercise wisdom, be faithful in their responsibilities, and maintain order. Lord, may all these things happen, that your name may be glorified, that the gospel would go forth without hindrance, and that your church would be able to live in faithful obedience to your word. Lord, in Psalm 96, we read that one day you will come to judge the earth, that you will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in your faithfulness. And Lord, we echo the psalmist and pray that you would come quickly, that you would come and judge the world and set right great evils present today that we have inflicted on ourselves, whether that is the ever-present evil of abortion or the horrific violence against women in Tigray and Ethiopia, or the the ongoing suppression and persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. But we know, Lord, that you delay in mercy so that the full number of your church may come to faith. And so we pray, Lord, that you would hasten your coming by empowering your preaching, the preaching of your word from every pulpit in this world this Sunday, and especially this one. We pray that you would bless the hearts and minds of all who preach your word, especially Pastor Eric this morning, Bless them with conviction, with passion, with truth, with self-control, and with a zeal for your glory. Let your spirit work mightily through your truth this morning. Let our glorious Savior be magnified and lifted up. May many come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and may the hearts of your saints be made joyous and worshipful. And Father, to you be the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Like Jonah, who prayed from the inside of a great fish, Cyrus Brown also preached from an unlikely place. Well, who is Cyrus Brown exactly? Let me read to you this quick little poem written by Sam Walter Foss. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, And the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No. I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and rapt and upturned eyes. 
Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown. With both my heels a-stickin' up, my head a-pintin' down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed a-standing on me head. If you are visiting with us today, we are studying the Minor Prophets, also known as the Book of the Twelve. These prophets, they are not minor in significance, they're just minor in length. Last week we looked at Obadiah, which is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament, and that brings us next today to the fifth and most famous, I think, of these little prophecies, and that is the book of Jonah. Jonah is arguably the most well-known book of all the minor prophets. This story may be the most well-known story in the entire Bible, but probably not well-known for the best reasons. Yes, Jonah tells us the miraculous story of a man being swallowed by a fish. But what Jonah is really about is not a great fish. It is about the great compassion of God. It sends a very different message than all the other minor prophets. Though everyone in this story deserves God's judgment, everyone receives God's mercy. So we're going to take two weeks to preach through this little book of Jonah. This morning, we will just cover the First half, chapters 1 and 2, God willing, and there are three parts to this sermon. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we have God's call and Jonah's disobedience. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, we have God's storm and Jonah's confession. And then the third part, chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, we have God's fish and Jonah's prayer. That is where we are headed today. We should begin by praying, though, so will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as always, we need your help. We need your help to understand your word and to apply your word. We know that our minds are going to stay dark without you. 
We know that our hearts are going to be cold toward you without you. So by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us light and heat. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find the book of Jonah on page 726. And let's get one thing straight right off the bat. Most of the conversation surrounding this book over the ages is over whether or not this is a true story. After all, let's be honest and frank with one another. There are quite a few events in this little book that are very hard to believe. Okay, the right position is that the book of Jonah is historical narrative. This is a true story. And there are several arguments that I could give, but here is the most significant in Matthew, the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11, it is clear that Jesus believed that everything in this book actually took place, which is good enough reason for me to believe the very same thing. So as I mentioned in the introduction, there are three parts to this sermon, and those three parts, they mirror three scenes in the story of Jonah. Jonah. Who's Jonah? So there are three scenes or three acts that we're going to be working through in these first couple chapters. Again, scene one. Those first three verses is God's call and Jonah's disobedience. Scene two, verses 4 through 16 of chapter 1 is God's storm and Jonah's confession. And then scene 3, the last scene we'll cover today, through chapter 2, verse 10, is God's fish and Jonah's prayer. Let's begin with scene 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah was a prophet, which means he was called by God to be God's mouthpiece. God spoke, that means, directly to Jonah. There are prophets in the Old Testament. There are prophets in the New Testament. According to Ephesians 2.20 and elsewhere, they were part of laying a foundation, which means we no longer have prophets, but we have their prophecies. We have their words. God no longer speaks to us through his direct voice as he did to men like Judah, Jonah, but he speaks to us through his written word. So Jonah was one of those prophets. He was a mouthpiece of God. And he was ministering during the reign of King Jeroboam II. So if you care about dates, that means that he was prophesying between the years of 786 and 746 B.C. And 
his prophecy, it is unlike all the other minor prophecies. Because Jonah is narrative. That means the book of Jonah, it tells a story. So it is more about this prophet than it is about his actual prophecy. It is more story and it is very little sermon. So whereas the other books of the 12 minor prophets, we know very little in those books. I mean, we've studied four of them. And in each of them and the rest, we know very little about the men themselves. But in Jonah, we learn a lot about him. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. There is God's call in verse 2. God's call is God's command. God's call is what God wants you to do with your life. What God wants you to do in your life. And in this case for Jonah, God's call was shocking. This was a shocking commission. God calls Jonah to go and preach judgment against the great city of Nineveh. That would be a dangerous calling. That was a dangerous journey to a dangerous place. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and in that day, it was the greatest city around. It covered about 1,800 acres. It had defensive walls around it that were 100 feet high. It had a 50-mile aqueduct that delivered water to the city. And it was 500 miles away from Jonah when he gets this call. And that's not like today where you hop on a plane and just fly there in a few hours. 500 miles away, northeast of Jonah, which would be in modern-day Iraq. So that journey alone would take months and would be very dangerous. That's where God calls Jonah to go. And then once he got there, the danger was far from over because this was a dangerous people. They didn't know God and they were ruthless enemies of his people. We're going to read about people in this story who didn't know God, but they were good people, at least compared to other people. They were what you might call moral unbelievers. That's not what was happening, though, in the city of Nineveh. The Assyrians were definitely immoral believers. Just decades after this account, they're going to march in and completely destroy Israel in 722 B.C. The city and its people, they were known for their immorality and their violence. 
including leaders who had a reputation for cutting off fingers and lips and noses of their enemies. We find these things boasted in and depicted in reliefs all throughout the ruins of that city today. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, of all places, and to preach a message about God's pending judgment. It reminds us of the book we read just last week. Obadiah was sent by God to preach judgment to Edom. And now Jonah is called by God to preach against Nineveh. But Jonah was not obedient like Obadiah. Verse 3. But, God called Jonah to do this, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. That is very clear. The author is making very clear what it is that Jonah did in response to God's command, and it's not good. God said, go. Jonah said, no. Disobeys God. But he didn't just disobey God, right? He doesn't just say no to God. He tries to run from God. It says to flee from the presence of the Lord. People do this. It doesn't make any sense, but people do this. You've probably done it. I know I've done it. The first sinners, Adam and Eve, they did it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, after they had sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It doesn't make any sense, but sinners do it. It is an instinctive, shamed reaction to the holiness of God. Jonah should have known better. He's a prophet. Called by God. Appointed by God. He's to be an example to his people. He probably had Psalm 139 memorized. In verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 139, David said, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And of course, it's implied and everywhere in between. God, you're everywhere. There's no hiding from you. There's no running from you. Yet Jonah disobeys God, and then he runs from God. He goes straight to a port, and he looks for a boat. If you were to look at a map, he heads in the opposite direction. So Nineveh was northeast 
of where God called Jonah to go, and he looks for a boat that is heading west. And not just heading west, but Tarshish was this city that was on the far side of Spain. If you were someone in the Middle East, that was considered the end of the world. You didn't even really know what was beyond that. It is 3,000 miles away from Nineveh. Not good, Jonah. Not good. Jonah, like so many central figures in the Bible, is an anti-hero. This is one of the lovable things about the people in God's Word. They are not polished and perfect people, lest we think that we need to be polished and perfect to have the favor of God. An antihero, if you don't know what that is, is a central character in a story, movie, or drama who lacks conventional heroic attributes. Now start running through central figures in the Bible other than Jesus. They're just about all. Maybe they are all antiheroes, and Jonah's no exception. We'll learn Jonah's reason for saying no in chapter 4, not this morning. But it's really not important for us to know yet. There is no good reason to disobey God. There is no good reason to disobey God. Now, let me make an important point lest we misapply this. God will most likely not call you to something the way he called Jonah. It's not going to be the same way. Jonah was a prophet. I said this earlier. That means that God spoke directly to him. But according to New Testament history, and scriptures again, like Ephesians 2.20, prophets, they were a part of a foundation, a foundation that has been laid. God's word and now his church has been built on that foundation. We're so thankful for those prophets. God will not call you to something by speaking to you other than through his written word. We would not, therefore, recommend you to try and hear or listen to voices because it would be just that, hearing voices. Rather, with the Holy Spirit who is within us, His guiding, His leading, His direction, His shining a floodlight on our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pay attention to the opportunities and providence that God has us in the middle of, and we go to His Word for direction. Now that said, God will make some callings perfectly obvious to you. If you are married, He has called you to love your spouse. If you are a parent, God has called you to raise your children. If you have a church, 
you are called to encourage and build them up. If you have a job, you are called to work hard as working for God. If you have siblings, kids and teenagers here, if you have siblings, God has called you to love them. If you have parents, you're called to honor them. If you're faced with temptation, you are called to obey God and so on and so forth. And it is a distraction often for Christians to neglect these perfectly obvious callings in search of some other mystical, dramatic calling. So don't look for that. Certainly don't expect that. Pay attention to what God has made perfectly clear to you today. And you and I must not say no to God. We must not say no to God. But Jonah did. So let's move on to our second scene in verses 4 through 16 of chapter 1. Here is God's storm and Jonah's confession. Psalm 33.7 says, God gathers the waters of the sea in jars. He puts the deeps in storehouses. That means the ocean belongs to God. And He can do whatever He wants with it. Jonah should have perhaps meditated on that text before boarding the ship to run from God. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, it's a storm on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Uh-oh. You cannot run from God, Jonah. I know that most of you have read this story before. This is one of the challenges if you've read your Bible many times is to not read the Bible in this sort of rote, routine way. Sometimes what happens when you do that is you're not surprised by amazing things anymore because you've read it so many times, you've heard it so many times. You ever find yourself reading something in God's Word and you're hardly focusing on it because you know what is just around the corner. So we can have that problem when we come to Jonah. Because you've heard the story before, and so you know that Jonah, he's not going to get smoked here. You know that. But if you hadn't, if you had not read this story before, and you were just reading and plugging away through the minor prophets, by the time you get to the book of Jonah, you have been sort of conditioned to expect fierce judgment at this point. Like if you've read Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, and now you get to this story of Jonah, and he's saying no to God's face, and he's trying to get 3,000 miles away from him, and then God sends this storm, you're thinking, he's going to get smoked. 
Like if you are standing around Jonah on the deck of the ship and you know what he's done and you see dark clouds and you see a lightning strike off in the distance, if you're in that crowd, what are you doing? You're backing away. Here it comes. Here it comes. This story is about to end real quick. You're assuming the storm will be the end of Jonah. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest so that the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5. Then the mariners, not the baseball team, that means sailors, they were afraid and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Not a light sleeper, Jonah. Evidently a heavy sleeper. Some of you are heavy sleepers. But would you sleep through this? Would this not wake you up? How could Jonah not wake up? He's at the bottom of this boat in the middle of this storm. In Luke chapter 22, verse 45, Jesus, you remember, had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he told some of his disciples to stay awake and to keep watch, but they, they could not stay awake. I'm sure, they wanted to. They could not stay awake. And we are told that he found them sleeping for sorrow. They were, I think that means emotionally exhausted. Physically, too, I'm sure Jonah would have been physically exhausted. But is he also emotionally exhausted? John Blanchard in his commentary writes about Jonah that he was almost certainly stressed out with sorrow, shame, and guilt at what he was doing in disobeying God. I wonder if you've experienced this. You feel so guilty or ashamed that you can hardly get out of bed. Disobedience is draining. Guilt and shame are draining. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? I'm sure he said some other things. Arise, call out to your God. They were pagans. They had all different gods. We've called out to all our gods, but hey, maybe we just we're missing. We got another number to dial here. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
Now, casting lots, we don't do that anymore. It's a lot like rolling dice. It was probably done with rocks. And it was an ancient practice that was used to randomly select someone. And it was often believed that God or a God would be the one who determined the outcome. So it was a way of getting direction from God. And in fact, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, and its every decision is from the Lord. How is that for a sovereign God? A God who cares and is in control of all things, including those things that we think are most random. So they cast lots, verse 7, and the lot fell on. Dun, dun, dun. Surprise, Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. That seems to indicate a repentant heart in Jonah, maybe. That sounds like confession. Sounds like guilt. Sounds like shame. Which might confirm why Jonah was able to sleep through the storm in the first place. And now here's how the sailors respond. They were good men. They were moral unbelievers. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They do not want to throw Jonah overboard. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, if you are reading this for the first time, there's the judgment you expect. 
And you might think the story would just end here. Thought it was going to end with the storm, but God is sparing these innocent sailors. He gets Jonah now thrown into the sea. There it is. There's the judgment of God. There's the message of Jonah. Don't run from God. If you do, he will find you and he will kill you. That's sort of a minor prophet message, isn't it? Don't disobey God. Don't run from God. Don't cross God. That's not the end. The story does not end with God's storm and Jonah's confession. There is a third scene. God sends a big, fat, merciful fish. Chapter 1, verse 17. Let's read it together. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is hard to believe. That is why people have fought over the authenticity of this book for so long. But if you believe in Jesus resurrecting from the dead, believing in this great fish is really no big deal. I enjoy fishing. And I have heard some fish stories A fish story is a story about fishing that exaggerates, right? And no one was there to see it, so you can exaggerate through the roof. So people who fish know what fish stories are, and I've heard a lot of fish stories, but no matter how big a fish story I've heard, it is always about a human catching a fish, And it's never about a fish catching a human. This is a serious fish story. And for some, what follows in chapter 2, it is a disappointing lack of details on this fish. That's how I felt when I was a kid, anyway. I Actually, I still feel that way. I want a lot more details here. What was... What was the inside of this fish like? And and how was he able to breathe? And what did he do for three? There's no details. I would like a whole book just about that. Here's what we have. We have Jonah's prayer, which is fascinating because that tells you what Jonah was thinking while he was in the fish. And I definitely want to know what Jonah was thinking. And what we find is a a, a change of mind. We find a change of heart. Jonah has gone from running from God to running to God. And we hear it in this prayer. So we're going to read it together. And I won't quote each of them, but every verse here can be rooted in a psalm. 
As a boy, Jonah would have read, probably memorized many of the Psalms, and here he's recalling that and he's praying them back to God. The Psalms, you know, in your Bible, they are a collection of songs and they are a collection of prayers that were sung by God's people. And you can find in them just about every single human emotion and experience. And so many of you, when you're going through it, whether it's on the mountaintop or whether it's in the valley deep, you have found places in Psalms where you can identify, and it is a good and great thing to cry out to God with those words. So here's Jonah and the fish. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And you hear these psalms come out. Let me just read it to you. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now here's the turn. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if I'm Jonah, though I know that God is ultimately going to save my soul, I'm probably thinking, this is it. My time's up. But, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Oh, okay. There you go. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited. Okay. It vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's where we'll stop today. To be continued, the story that is, in our next sermon on Jonah. Now in conclusion, those are the three scenes in these first couple chapters. We've got to think about this and 
how it applies to us. What application do we take from this? Avoid large fish. (laughs) This is a very unique book. Remember that. So it's going to work different than the others. It's going to apply different than the others. It's more about the prophet and his, his story and, and his example to us than the prophecy and his actual sermon, which we haven't even gotten to yet. So what was God teaching Israel? What was God teaching Israel? And what is God teaching us? We, we shouldn't disobey God. That's absolutely a lesson that we would all take from this book. We should not disobey God. It will not go well for you if you disobey God. We should not run from God. These are foolish things. They are wrong to do, and they are just plain foolish things to do. God will find you. Is that the main point of the book of Jonah? Or these first two chapters? I don't think it is. The book is certainly about the sovereignty of God. Is there anything in this book so far that God is not in complete control over? And the answer is a resounding no. It's God's call. It's God's storm. It's God's fish. It all works for God. And how does God exercise His sovereignty here. To what end? The storm he sends. This great fish. All under God's control. What is God doing? Let me read you a quote from James Boyce. God, and he's talking about Jonah's rebellion and Jonah's disobedience. His heart is against God. His will is against God. Isn't that clear in what we've read? He's trying to get 3,000 miles away from where God wants him to be. And at that point, what does God do in the story? And James Boyce said, God could crush the human will and thereby accomplish his own purpose with a ruthless Hand. There are times when God has done this, as in the contest between Moses and Pharaoh. And you remember God hardened and hardened and hardened Pharaoh's heart. Could have done that with Jonah. But generally, God does not. What happens in such cases? Does God give up? Does He give up on Jonah? Does God change his mind? Never mind, I'll just find somebody else to accomplish my will through. Not going to happen through Jonah. Gave it a shot. No. Or does, Boyce writes, God accomplish his purposes in some other way, perhaps indirectly? And the answer to that question is in the book of Jonah. So what does God do with Jonah? God mercifully makes him willing. 
Think about this. God changes Jonah's heart. God changes Jonah's mind. And He does it through His control of all of the circumstances in Jonah's life. That is how God in His sovereign control of all things, that is how He gets Jonah where He wants Jonah to be. And so God mercifully makes Jonah willing. God's sovereignty, it could have resulted in judgment on Jonah. It should have, we could say, resulted on judgment in Jonah. But it ended in mercy. God saved Jonah even from his own rebellion and sin. And that is really what this book is all about. Everyone in this book, you'll see the same next time, deserves God's wrath and God's judgment. And let me just say, especially the believer in the story. Everyone deserves God's judgment in this book. And guess what happens to everyone in this book? They receive God's mercy. The sailors, God's mercy. Jonah, God's mercy. Next time we'll even see the Ninevites, God's mercy. Jonah has sown mercy at the brink of death. You hear him describe it in his prayer. He and the sailors, they deserved death. Storms should have been the end. Fish should have been the end. It is a reminder that we never descend so far to be out of reach of God's mercy. What an image of Jonah in the belly of a fish in the depths of the sea with he describes seaweed wrapped around his head. There's no place lower to go. But he was not out of reach of God's mercy. So God wounds Jonah and God heals Jonah. God is the sender of the storm and God is the sender of the fish. The storm works for God. The fish works for God. That judgment, the punishment, that works for God. That discipline, that works for God. The salvation, that works for God. It all works for God. God is in control of all these things and to what ends for those He loves? Mercy. Compassion. These clouds you so much dread, they are filled with mercy. And they will soon break over your head. It doesn't look good. You think it looks good in the belly of a fish? It doesn't look good, does it? Circumstances don't look good, do they? The world around you doesn't look good, does it? 
your neighborhood, your state, your country, your nation doesn't look good, does it? It all works for God. And where is God going with his people? Where was God going with Jonah? Take heart. Mercy. Compassion. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, God says, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver you out of my hand. Now, at the end of the day, we know that this is the message of Jonah. We know that that's what this book is about because Jesus told us so. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. You should read this later if you want to think about Jonah more. But here's what Jesus said. He answered them, his disciples, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's Jonah about, Jesus? For... Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was shown great mercy. And this was a sign. It was a pointer to how we also would be shown mercy. This is not only a story about God showing mercy to Jonah. It is a picture of how we also will be saved. It looked like it was over for Jonah. Three days. For three days, it looked like it was over for Jonah. But on the third day, he was victorious. On the third day, he was delivered. So too, after the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for three days it looked like it was over. It looked like He was done, and so it looked like we were done. But on the third day, He rose from the dead. To accomplish what He said He came to accomplish. And what was that? It was to extend mercy and compassion to his people. So much love and mercy and compassion that there was a way to save you and I from our sin. And that's it, that salvation, of course, Jonah 2.9 in his prayer, Jonah said, salvation belongs to, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. He was saved by the Lord. You too, Christian. You have been saved by the Lord. 
You have cried out to God in faith. But even your faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, has been a gracious gift of God. You cried out in faith because you were born again. You cried out in faith because you were given new life. You saw God because he opened your eyes. You heard God because he opened your ears. You were, you know this, don't you? Dead in sin. Not sick in sin, not hurt in sin, not paralyzed in sin, but dead in sin. And through Christ, God made you alive. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words today that remind us of the great mercy that you have shown us. God, we pray that we would not take this for granted. We pray that we would not need an experience like Jonah did to be awakened to our sin and to your mercy. God, may we not disobey you. May we not run from you. May we love you and serve you for all our days. And will you use stories like this to kindle our affection for you so that we would never, ever, ever want to disobey you ever want to run from you because you alone have the words of life. We love you. We give you all praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.